Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. Yeah, and that really ties into uh, Robin's question about what are the most important things to look for when watching a set where you bombed in order to improve best? I need to have acceptance and awareness. If I have acceptance and awareness, then I can look at a joke that I've written without assigning a value judgment to it, without saying that I did a bad job of writing that joke. Instead, I can look at it objectively and say, which part is the setup? This part here. Which part is the punchline? This part here. Are they in the right order? Is the setup before the punchline? Is the key word or the funny word at the end? All of that stuff I can can ask effectively because I'm out of the way of my own emotion now. Every word I write is a cherished child. Some of those words have to die. Sometimes the whole joke has to die or the whole set has to die. Hot breath. What's goody, Hot breath verse? Welcome back to Hot Breath, the show where you learn comedy from the pros. I am your host, comedian Joel Byers, and our mission with this show and community is to cultivate the next generation of self-made comics. A big way we're doing that this year is on our YouTube channel. Our goal is to hit 50,000 subscribers, and if you want to help us on that mission, go subscribe to our YouTube channel and share this podcast. Just to jump into it here, with this book, like I thoroughly enjoyed it as a comedian 12 years in the game. I learned a lot. But what, what with you writing this, what are you hoping that comedians leave this book with? Well, that's a great question. First of all, let me explain where my authority comes from. More than 30 years of experience in teaching and writing comedy and less than 10 minutes experience in stand-up comedy. I want to make that clear <laughs> that I went into the book as an avid amateur, but I've been doing this all my life. If there's ever something I want to learn how to do, I find someone to pay me to teach it, which is unfortunate if the subject is archery or sailing, both of which I taught without knowing the first thing about it. Like I wrote 10 books on poker and I was never a good poker player. So I'm kind of a poster child for the concept of those who can't do teach. That's my brand. Mm -hmm. That's where I live. But um, in terms of what people expect to get out of it, I'm underselling, obviously. But um, the three things that I focus on in this book are tools inspiration and awareness. And these three things really go together because you have good tools. If you have strategies, you know what you're doing, then you can operate with more confidence. You can get better results. If you're getting better results, you're gonna feel better about yourself, more in touch with yourself, more with goals and more uh, inspired and excited by what you're doing. So I'm trying to create a virtuous circle for people where they can add skills, add awareness, and use the skills and awareness to level up their inspiration and then ride that inspiration like a wave they can surf. So that's what I'm about. And, and I would like to say, so far, so good. People are responding quite positively to the book. It's, it's uh, um, how, what's the one-liner I use? It's already broken through in the Amazon top 10 digits. So that's good. And then uh, digits. <laughs> <laughs> it's right up there in the, in the, in the millions of stuff. And, uh, but, but people are responding positively to it. I feel like this is a book that is finding the audience that it's intended to find, which is people who are somewhere on the path toward stand-up comedy excellence, not necessarily as far along as they want to be, but emotionally intelligent enough to know that emotional intelligence matters. And they think that if, if you're in the audience and you're, you're listening to this and you're asking yourself, do I care about emotional intelligence? If the answer to that question is yes, I think you're going to find a warm and uh, compatible home in this book for yeah. sure yeah and it almost like what well, was interesting and mike marr actually said this should be required reading for hot breath um huh. and i mean I, and i agree i mean it, it's a it's a shorter book as well which i think comics can um you know appreciate as well it like but there's so much information in here and what i what i picked up on in reading it, it it's there's a lot of like technique in here but it's also it almost is like a self-help book in a lot of ways mm -hmm. as well there's a lot of things about mindset and self-awareness and goal setting that i think as comedians we get so stuck in i gotta write and perform 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 and you can kind of get stuck in that cycle and forget to have a purpose behind what you're doing to have a reason to have a goal to have a vision 
for who you want to entertain and how you want to come off to them. Like those are those are some like of the minutia of becoming a professional comedian that probably took me eight to 10 years to really start honing in on. And if this is something people can do early on, it's going to make their whole career that much easier. What you're talking about is having a practice, okay? In this case, we're talking about having a practice of stand-up comedy, but you can have a practice of anything, art, music, business, medicine, anything at all. But if you think about it as, I have a goal, I have to achieve my goal, and if I don't achieve my goal, I die, and then that's a no-win situation. You're never going to achieve the end result that you think is there. It's like dangling in the sky somewhere and you're just never gonna catch up to it. But if you change your goal to, I'm here to have a practice and improve my practice, something you can never fail at because you can always get better at your practice just by putting in more time. And you get that relaxed feeling that today's outcomes are important because I wanna do them well. I mm-hmm. wanna write good jokes, I wanna perform well, but today's outcomes aren't really that important because even if I don't get the outcomes I'm looking for, I'm still adding to my storehouse of self-knowledge and tool craft I'm building in my practice. So the minute you say to yourself, I'm in my practice, it's like turning on a light. You never have to wonder if you're in the right place or not. You know you're in the right place because you're in your practice and it's where you want to be. It's funny, I was having a, a, a chat on Facebook earlier today about what, you know, why do you do what you do? Is it just habit? Is it an itch that you can't help but scratch? I think for a lot of people in stand-up, it's, I don't know, I'm just compelled. I got to get up on stage. Maybe people realize that it's the buzz, you know, they, they like the validation and they like that feeling they get when a joke lands, mm-hmm. but you can lose perspective and get in the, get to the point where you're just chasing the buzz without asking what brought you to it in the first place. And here's what I think. If you look at yourself honestly, you're gonna say, I came to this for a reason. And the reason was there was something about myself or my experience that I wanted to express. And maybe along the way, I got distracted in that because I realized, oh, you gotta write a tight five, you gotta talk to the bookers and you gotta do this, you gotta be that, and you gotta fist bump the host and call out the host and you know all of this protocol, which is part of it. It's being in community and it's important. But what lit the fire in the first place? Never forget what lit the fire in the first place because that's what sustains you. It's not the gigs. It's not even the laugh. That's, it's a good buzz, but it's a secondary drug, one might say. The primary buzz is the sense of fulfillment that comes from recognizing that you are turning your human experience into communication that's meaningful to other people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that growth mindset is so important, especially as a comedian in the highs and lows that come with it. And a big part of you mentioned in the book is like not taking things personally. Like when you bomb, it's not, you reframe it as like, what can I learn from this? And not like, what's wrong with me? Like those little mindset shifts can really take the the grueling grind of being a comedian and make it more fun and fulfilling. Wow. I, I cut my teeth on situation comedy in Hollywood in the 80s and 90s. And, and I was not emotionally prepared for what I went through. And a lot of what informed my career career had to do with how I was not prepared. I didn't have the the basis of self-awareness and fundamental sense of self and security that I needed. I had a lot of insecurity that I was dealing with and processing. And I look back on those times and I say, I had to figure out so much of this stuff on my own. I mean, I had good mentors, but nobody ever came along and said, outcomes don't matter. You know, making them love you doesn't matter. Validation comes from within. I really Mm -hmm. wish that I had had that kind of voice inside my head when I needed it. And so if you're asking what I'm about now, I'm at the other end of my life. I'm 66 years old. So I really am speaking to not just my former self, but people who are now the age that I was then. If I can save them some of the heartache that I went through, I'll really feel like I have been in service. And that's part of what I'm about, being in service. I totally agree. I mean, probably it took me probably eight years into my 12-year career to start focusing on what I can control and not seeking that outside validation of, oh, I want to get on that show with the cool flyer or like, why is so-and-so getting such and such that I'm not, even though I'm not actively even pursuing it, I just deserve it because I'm the chosen one. Like all these stories I was telling myself, 
like it it just held me back and when i started focusing on what i can control and creating my own opportunities that's when people actually started bringing opportunities to me perhaps you're reflecting on a quality that i know i have and that is a sense of arrogant insecurity which you kind of <laughs> describe as i i kind of describe on one hand dude you should totally buy my book and on the other hand i'm sorry i killed the tree you know it's it, it's like i can't help <laughs> thank you thank you. i can't help i can't help feeling extremely good and extremely bad about myself at the same time and i think that's a very common thread for people in all creative practice mm -hmm. so uh, a lifetime ago, even a generation ago, even five years ago, I didn't really recognize this about myself. And as I look at it now, it's interesting. I can track, trace it all the way to elementary school when two things were always true. I was almost always the smartest kid in the class, and I was always the shortest kid in the class. And because I was smart, I had arrogance. And because I was short, I had an insecurity. And it's taken me a lifetime to arrive at that understanding of something that happened and formed in me when I was eight years old. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess this is my mission because that information is really useful to me. I wish it hadn't taken me a lifetime to figure it out. So if I can speak to people who are practicing their creative craft, no matter what it is, and say, pay attention to the roots of you, be aware of and super accepting of all of the parts of you that make you who you are, then you'll find that all of the subsequent steps are easier, you're more efficient, and you're less filled with heartache. And again, these things contribute to good practice. If you have good practice, you can get better outcomes. So it's weird to say, because you talk about, I want them to love me. I want them to hire me. I want the next gig. I want the one after that. I want the, I want the adulation. I want the validation. But all of that stuff really comes to us more effectively if we don't look at it directly. If we look at it obliquely and mm -hmm. say, I'm just going to be over here doing my job. And if good things happen to me, that's great. That's actually a much more efficient process to getting to those good things, in my estimation. How do you find balancing that creativity and commerce, though? Because it is show business. And what I'm finding is like almost suffocating, like my pursuit of money to where I'm like, how, you know, it's not it's great to write jokes and it's it's great to do interviews. And but it's like, but Georgia Power doesn't accept, you know, gratitude, you know, so it's like, how how have you in your like just your career is incredible and how long it's been and how many people you've helped. When have you found like your biggest financial success? What do you, what do you kind of um, attribute to that? Or like when you're able to make money being creative, like what is that balance there? Help me. That's, that, obviously that's the goal, making money being creative. We want yeah. to have, have our, our finance, our money aligned with our creativity, obviously. So my controlling idea since I was very young in my profession is never leave money lying on the table. If there's money to be made in exchange for creativity, even if it's not directly related to what I think I want, I'm going to go for it because then I can get paid and I can also learn. I'll give you an example. While I was getting my sitcom career off the ground, I had the opportunity to write back cover copy for 500 movies that were in the public domain that were being uh, released on videotape, not even DVD, but video. And I thought, well, that seems like it's going to be a boring and repetitious job, but it's going to pay me to write words. And because it's going to pay me to write words, it's better than anything that doesn't pay me to write words. In order to embrace that opportunity, I have to step aside from my fear. Because in that moment, I'm going to say, this doesn't look like a job that I'm capable of doing or qualified to do. So I better figure out a way to go for it and claim that I'm incapable and qualified, even if I don't feel it in my heart. Because I know there's learning in it. I have faith in myself that if I get the job, I'm going to do a reasonably good job. And if I don't, what's the worst that can happen? I get fired, you know? Mm -hmm. so, um, so don't leave money on the table and don't fear bad outcomes. This is the other thing. People look at my career and they say, all, of all the crazy things I've done in weird situations all over the world, what is the controlling idea? The controlling idea is I don't fear bad outcomes. I will take any opportunity that comes my way, even though I might feel, might even know it's going to be a catastrophic failure because there's a paycheck and there's learning involved and there's growth involved. And if the bad thing happens and I don't do that great a job on it, it's not going to kill me. I'm going to learn and move on. So 
to your question, how can I make it pay? Be, be focused on looking for work where your creativity and paychecks are in line with one another. That is where your creativity can earn. And then track your fear. Because here's what will happen. You'll go into a circumstance and somebody will say to you, I'd like you to write me some jokes. And your fear will say, I would like to ask for $50, $100, $1,000, whatever that number is. But a little voice inside your head will say, hang on, don't ask for that. Because if you ask for that, they might laugh in your face. And if they laugh in your face, what they're really saying is, you think you're worth any money at all, and you're wrong, and you're laughable, and you're a loser, and I hate you, and therefore you have to hate yourself. And all of this kind of internal editing goes on, and what it keeps us from doing is asking for what we're worth. Uh, creative people as a class negotiate against themselves all the time because of their fear. Here's a strategy you can use that's really reliable. Think about the most obscenely large number you can imagine asking for, for your work, then double it and ask for that. And if mm. you do that, you'll probably be in the right ballpark because you negotiate against yourself. You consider yourself to be worth less. So you put a lower value on your work and that makes it easy for people to say yes, but not easy for you to, to earn a lot. You know, I, I might say to myself, I think my work jo jokes are worth a dollar each or $5 each. Instead, I'm going to ask for two or 10 and see what happens. They might negotiate me right back to where I was, but I'm negotiating against myself if I'm letting my fear get between myself and the client. Yeah, and I like that so, mindset around, yes, you may have always dreamt of being a stand-up comedian, but what are other creative things you can do with that skill set you have? So it may be writing freelance for like a blog or something, but hey, you're still a writer and it's still just using your creative skills in multiple different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And to that point, versatility is key. Man, if you know how to do a lot of different things with your tools, with your writing tools, with your comic tools, or even you expand into music or art, anything else, that gives you more opportunities to pursue opportunity and more chances of, um, of getting you know, success somewhere along the way. Um, I had the experience five years ago, six years ago now, of, of entering visual art for the first time. I'd never done it before. My process was kind of broken, and I really felt like I needed to recharge my batteries. And what I experienced was complete insecurity because I'd never done art before. But that insecurity was really refreshing and illuminating to me because I had nothing. I knew nothing. I was like Bob Dylan. You got nothing. You got nothing to lose. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and, and look what I have achieved. You might think this is a digital background, but it's actually a physical background and it's actually my artwork. Oh. And, and so, so I've, I've gained some chops and added to my repertoire. And what does this mean? This means I can do sexy covers of my own books. This means I can do cover work for other people if they reach out to me. This means I have more ways to spend my creative mojo because I have made the conscious decision not to be limited. A lot of people listening to us today probably define themselves as stand-up comics, mm -hmm. and that's great. It's good to have a strong sense of self. But it might also be that they're, while they're defining themselves as stand-up comics, they're also defining themselves as not other things. For instance, I'm a stand-up comic. I'm not a comic storyteller. That is to say, I don't write sitcom. Well, that's just a block of definition that you've placed between yourself and your creativity. Because tomorrow morning, you might wake up, wake up and say to yourself, okay, I recognize that I am not currently a stand-up comic, but I can enter that practice. I can get a book, maybe a book called <coughs> The Little Book of Sitcom. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. uh, 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 sorry, and parentheses. And also, don't be afraid to feel okay about yourself. I mean, look where I am right now. I launched a new book into a stand-up community where I don't have a lot of cred. I am not a known performer. Thank you. Oh, I'll do the same thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, happy nice. buddies. Woo. <laughs> um, and that's linked in the chat every as time, well for people. And, and every, but every time I try to sell myself, I feel self-conscious. But if I don't try to sell myself, if all I do is write the books and don't try to sell them, then what is the point? The, the, the one-liner I've been using is, at that point, I'm just masturbating differently. So, so you know, not so good. Oh, Born uh, Brandon so says I, I can, own the little it, book of sitcom too. Very nice. 
All right. Do you do you think we should go to some of these questions that are in the yeah, chat? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Mike Marr, he had he has to go to an uh, open mics, but he wanted me to read this that John Vorhaus is the hairless Rick Rubin guru of comedy writing. Um, and then he said you can place that quote on the front cover of your next book. Thank you. I appreciate that. I on the on the back cover of the comic toolbox, there's a quote from a female sitcom writer, and and I, uh, the quote is, um, "I wouldn't want to sleep with him, but I'd certainly buy his book." I always thought that that got me uh, a, a certain amount of cred and a certain amount of sales over oh, time. Yeah, so let's um let's see what um kind of questions we have. Here's one from Stargate one two one, who asks, "Have you ever written a script for a performer you didn't think was talented?" That's a great question. We note this week the passing of Howard Hessman, and he was on a TV show called uh, Head of the Class that I wrote for, and it's it's weird and sad to think that the star of that show is now dead. I'm still alive, but who knows for how long. Anyway, there was one character on the show. I, I won't I won't say who he was, but he kept kind of hexturing me saying, write me more good lines. And I kind of would have, but I was so low in the power structure. It really didn't matter what I did. Um, with that said, I tried to let not let, I try not to let my emotion get in the way of my work. Uh, a writer's job is to make an emotional bridge between himself or herself and the target or the destination. So when I'm writing for other people, I try not to assign a value judgment to how I think about them. Mm. I am more interested in the question of what do they need? Can I meet that need? How can I serve them? A thousand years ago, I wrote stand-up comedy for a 12-year-old girl. I was an adult, I was 30 at the time, something like that. And my first thought was, well, I don't really know how to speak to the experience of a 12-year-old girl because I've never been a 12-year-old girl, but I was a 12-year-old boy once. I know what teenage life is like. So I looked for the points of connection between my emotional state and the emotional state of the person I was writing for. Now, whether this is writing for a character in a sitcom or writing for a stand-up comic, my goal is to figure out what's going on inside their heart and head and then articulate that for them. Um, of what I just said, the most important part is detach from value judgments. We look at situations mm. and we say, this is a good situation or a bad situation. I like that guy or I don't like that guy. This is a good job or a bad job. And all of this stuff just gets in the way of doing the job. So whenever I encounter myself having this emotional reaction, I remind myself that I needn't make a value judgment. I can simply evaluate objectively. And the place I try to arrive at in my life, in all of my endeavors, is this thing that I'm experiencing is not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just the thing that's happening now. And that strategy is good for dealing with problematic personalities. It's also good for dealing with setbacks in your life. Because if you get rejected, as you will get rejected, and it crushes you, if you can only interpret it as that was a bad thing and now I feel sad, one thing that's going to happen for sure is you're not going to want to get back out there and do it again. But you have to get back out there and do it again or your progress stops. So if you say to yourself, okay, that was an outcome, wasn't a good outcome, wasn't a bad outcome, it was just another outcome. What can I gain from the experience? How can I learn? What can I do better next time? That'll put me, you, put you, put me, put all of us in a frame of mind where we can operate effectively in our own self-interest. Yeah. Yeah, and that really ties into uh, Robin's question about what are the most important things to look for when watching a set where you bombed in order to improve best? Here's where it starts for me. Ask yourself what your intention is. A lot of stand-up comics, you see them, you've been them. A lot of stand-up comics present their material to the audience like this, like it's a little baby bird cupped in your hands. And you're saying to the audience, here are my precious fragile jokes. Please love them. Please don't hate them. Please don't kill them. Can you identify with state of mind, Joel? Have you been there? A hundred percent. hundred percent. I was okay. actually so taking note of that right now. Yeah. Okay, so what we're doing in that moment is we're giving the audience uh, authority 
over our state of mind. We're saying to the audience, I will feel good if you approve of me, and I will feel bad if you disapprove of me. And that in and of itself is a big block to success on stage because the audience is very uncomfortable with that feeling. They don't want that power. And when they sense you giving it to them, they become kind of standoffish. You end up getting the opposite reaction. You're putting this pressure on me for yourself, uh, for your sense of self, for you feeling about yourself. I don't want that. That's not what I'm here for. I'm just here to laugh. When we do that, we're trying to justify ourselves to the audience. Instead of doing that, instead of seeking to justify yourself to the audience, seek to define yourself for the audience. Say to yourself to the audience, this is who I am. This is my perspective. This is my point of view. These are my jokes. You're going to like some of them. You're not going to like others of them. I'm kind of invulnerable to whether you like them or not. If you don't like them, later on, I'm going to go back and ask myself, why didn't this joke, didn't, why didn't this joke work? And then I'm going to examine the technology of it. For example, I might say, well, the joke didn't work because it was crowded with stuff that didn't need to be there. And I'll circle back to that in a second, if I may. But you can't even make that judgment until you step outside of this, I need your approval thing. When you go on stage, invulnerable to, or let's say transparent to the audience's approval, then you're in a position where you can perform and succeed. If jokes still don't work, then like I said, you, you go into the structure of them, the technology of them, and really examine what's going on. One of the things that I make in this book is, at the end of the day, there are three classes of material in a joke. There's setup, there's punchline, and there's other stuff. And as you get good at this game, you realize if it's not setup and it's not punchline, it doesn't belong in the joke and you can cut it out. And the mere act of cutting out this stuff, which I call chuffa, meaningless information that doesn't need to be there, the mere act of cutting out the clutter will go a long way toward helping the jokes land better simply because they're more efficient. Now, what fights against this for a lot of people is the sense I'm telling them about my life and I can't tell them about my life if I'm not truthful about the experience itself. I'll give you an example. I went through back surgery not too long ago and I tell a lot of jokes about back surgery. I have no interest in explaining what the thing was really like. I only have interest in finding where the jokes are and landing the jokes. But somebody else might say, I had back surgery, and if I don't tell them chapter and verse, really what happened in that back surgery, then I'm not being loyal to reality. What you need to understand is the audience doesn't care about reality. They care about authenticity, and those are two different things. Reality is where you say, this is what really happened. And sometimes you defend the presence of material in your act on the basis of, I have to leave it in there because it really happened. Well, no, you don't need to leave it in there because it really happened. That's just you thinking that you have to be loyal to the facts. Audience doesn't care about the facts. They want the authenticity. They want the emotional resonance. They want to know why it mattered. I'll give you an example from my back surgery. Turns out that when they did this back surgery, they went in through my stomach, which took me by surprise. I didn't know they were going to do this. Now, the next thing I will tell you is about a, a conversation that I had with the doctor that never took place because I made this up. I said to the doctor, did you encounter any problems with the surgery? And he said, well, yeah, we did run into more stomach muscle than we thought we were going to. And I'm like, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, you did. So I'm looking for an emotional authenticity about my sense of self. I'm trying to feel like a robust young person. And I got a joke that works for that. I have a structure for the joke that involves a conversation that didn't actually happen that way. And that's quite right. So detaching from the need to portray reality with loyalty, with fealty, with uh, authenticity. No, that's not the right word, but, but to make sure you get the facts, right? If you let go of that, then you can start to let go of all the stuff that's only there to support the facts and doesn't support either the setup or the punchline. Now, these two things go hand in hand. I need to have acceptance and awareness. If I have acceptance and awareness, then I can look at a joke that I've written without assigning a value judgment to it, without saying that I did a bad job of writing that joke. Instead, I can look at it objectively and say, which part is the setup? This part here. Which part is the punchline? This part here. Are they in the right order? Is the setup before the punchline? Is the keyword or the funny word at the end? All of that stuff I can, can ask effectively because I'm out of the way of my own emotion now. And then this other stuff here, oh, I love it. I love it because I wrote it. 
you know, every word I write is a cherished child. Some of those words have to die. Sometimes the whole joke has to die or the whole set has to die. The more emotional clarity I have, the more acceptance and awareness that I have as a creator, the easier all those other things become. That's what I preach, brother. Yeah, I definitely agree with like looking at it objectively and not having an emotional connection to you bombing and taking it personally, but looking at it as an opportunity for growth and to learn from, well, what did work? What did I do well? And then if it didn't go well, what could I do to improve on that instead of beating myself up about, oh, I bombed, I'm dumb. It's more of like, oh, cool, you got on stage and now you have all this information that you can start to learn from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, ouch my feelings. That's the controlling idea for so many people. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens, it's ouch my feelings. And I just try and step outside that. Um, you're 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 gonna bomb you're gonna bomb spectacularly in fact for years and years as a, as a teacher of creativity i have preached the idea if you must fail and you will fail fail big because hmm. then you have the sensation of a spectacular failure and that's going to feel good on some whole other level you know it's it's funny because uh some people have asked me about this book well i've read the comic toolbox or a little book of sitcom or uh comedy writing for life is there anything really new in this book and you should know people should know that one thing i'm afraid of is belaboring points i've already made i don't want to be someone who packs new wine in old old wine in new bottles Mm. as the saying goes so something like fail big that's an important principle but you won't find it specifically in a little book of stand-up because i've covered it in other books and i don't like to cover the same ground from book to book or maybe i'm just trying to create a um, uh, a pipeline and by pipeline i mean uh, intravenous drug drip <laughs> to all of my work. <laughs> oh, I will say this book is a main line of information. There's no fluff. It really is just to the point concisely and very eloquently. So even someone 12 years in, I really learned a lot. And it was even some of it was even good reminders of like, oh man, yeah, I kind of got away from thinking at my jokes through this angle. So it's like, yeah, super valuable for any level. Um, I'm glad you find it so. Yeah, for sure. I sorry, I was just going to say I I feature I, I like to write small books now. It's not that I'm lazy or don't have a lot to say, but it, it's clear to me that that's where the market is. It's clear to me that people don't have attention spans that they had before cell phones came around, and there are other things competing for our attention. And I am really committed in this in this stage of my own writing life to being as efficient with information as possible. So. I, at a certain point in the past, I think I would have been self-conscious about writing a small book because it would seem like I was lazy or not trying hard or not delivering enough content. But my experience has taught me that from a marketing point of view, from a helpfulness point of view, information that's targeted and useful that you can put to work now today to improve your process, that's what gets the job done. Yeah, uh, You know, it's like I said before, it's, it's either setup or punchline or something else. Likewise with me, it's either tools or inspiration or awareness or something else. And if it's something else, it doesn't really need to be there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah and I, I appreciate that. And it's now it's easy. This is, this is a book that you can like reference multiple times. Like I have other comedy books, but they're so much longer. It's kind of like, I don't even kind of know where to begin, but like, this is a book that you can like travel with and just use as like a point of reference throughout your career that it isn't like just a thing that you like read and we're like, all right, check that off my list of books I'm supposed to read. Like, I feel like this is one, a tool, if you will. Yes. If you will. (laughs) And I certainly will because I've built my reputation on tools. Exactly. So uh, let's see. Marcus Mauser says, my problem right now is having anxiety energy while I perform and feel like my material is good. I just critique. I just, my critique to myself is that wait. And how long did it take you? Wait, my problem is having like anxiety energy while I perform. And I feel like my material is good and everything like that. Just my critique. Just my critique to myself is that, is that critique. I'm, I'm, I'm too hard on myself. Hard I on think it. is what mm-hmm. he's, is I think that I think that's what if Marcus if that's not what you're saying, um, forgive me for changing your question into one I can answer because mm-hmm. the answer is simple. Don't be so hard on yourself. But <laughs> but beyond that that simple um, answer is is one 
that I think will work a little bit better. A lot of stand-up comics at a certain point in their evolution simply aren't getting in enough reps. They're not on stage enough to reach the point where individual performances don't matter. If you're going up 10 times a week and you bomb once or twice or six times in the week, it's going to wash off you because you've got so many outcomes. You start to understand that no one outcome can control your ego. No one outcome can define your state of mind. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just another outcome. I've had plenty of those, good and bad. And I'm going to have plenty more, good and bad. I just need to put more energy into this, build more experience, put in my work, put in my reps, so that the things that I'm feeling now will be replaced by other things that I'm feeling later. Like, why the hell am I on the road? And what the hell can I do to get off the road, hmm. as an example? <laughs> I once described my business model as traveling great distances to collect paychecks and come home. And uh, in the early days, that was like I was in... Uh, I was in New England. I was performing as the strolling punk folk troubadour. I had a comedy music act and I would go from what? Boston where I live. I know, I know. I'd grow out my beard and then shave half of it and I wore a costume that was half punk, half folk. It was nonsense, but it was fun. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'd drive from Boston where I lived halfway across the state and then do a lunchtime strolling gig in the college cafeteria and maybe a songwriting workshop and then a thing in a coffee house in the evening and take my $200 paycheck and go home. And that was kind of the rhythm of my life. Wow. Later, after uh, I published the comic Toolbox and it started to lay beautiful gifts at my feet, people in other parts of the world started reaching out to me and said, can you come here and teach this stuff to me? And then I started going much greater distances and collecting much bigger paychecks. And at that point, I realized that my business model was this exactly. I'm traveling the world, exchanging information for experience and money. And if you had asked me when I was eight years or 10 years old, would you be happy with that outcome? I would have said, yeah, that sounds great. Are you kidding? I'm flying at other people's expense. I'm staying in hotels at other people's expense. They're paying me to jabber at them till I'm blue in the face. That sounds like a party with candles and cake for me. Mm -hmm. How do I get there? Get out of the way of my fear. Represent myself to the world as someone who can do the thing that I want to do. And then if somebody says, okay, prove it, somehow or another, I managed to find a way to prove it. Faith in yourself. Fear. Yeah. It, so it, you started getting bigger opportunities when you saw yourself worthy of them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, funny. It's, it, it, I, I'm going to tell you it's exactly the opposite, but let me explain why. In 1993 or 1994, I was in Australia uh, teaching at the Australian Film, Television, and Radio School in the company of some very heavy hitter sitcom writers. I might have had teaching expertise, but these guys were stars of the game. And I was, I was still kind of caught up in this, um, I'm not good enough, uh, uh, I'm not valid insecurity that was prominent in my life at that time. During a break, after one of the presentations, three people came up to me as a, as a group and they said, we want you to know that of all the presenters we've seen today, we like you best. And in that moment, I heard the following words come out of my mouth and these words changed my life. Because what I heard myself saying was exactly this, I'm not worthy. I appreciate your praise. I value it, I cherish it. But in this moment with the force of revelation, I realized I'm just operating as, as a function of higher powers, not God higher powers, but just I have some capability and I seem to be demonstrating this capability. And so I'm, I, I thank you for saying that, but I'm also profoundly aware of the gifts with which I am operating. And in that moment, I went from, this is the key, from fearing I was not worthy to knowing I was not worthy. And that's a big deal. Because if, if you fear you're not worthy, then you're always afraid that someone's going to find out you're a fraud or a phony, what I call in the comic toolbox, the fraud police. Fraud police are going to bust down the door and say, you're, you're incapable of doing what you're doing. Hmm. Come with us quietly. Nobody will get hurt. That's the fraud police. When you know you're not worthy and you do something that works out for yourself or other people, and you can appreciate that it's because you stand on a platform of practice, expertise, 
genetic gifts, the gift of life itself, you're suddenly much more at ease about it. You don't have to worry about people finding out you're a phony because in some sense, we're all phonies. We're all playing with the house's money from the moment we're born. And when we have that idea alive in our heads, it, it frees us up to take chances much more easily and more fearlessly. And that's just, that's a more effective place to be, especially if you're doing something hard like stand-up. So it like takes the pressure off of like, thinking, oh, I'm worthy, I'm great. So now you have these expectations and almost obligations to fulfill as opposed to, right? Yeah, you're, you, no, you're, you're on to, you're on to, you're on to something, you're on to strong medicine there. Because when you're speaking, when you're speaking of expectations, you're speaking of, I'm going to set the bar up here. And then because the bar is so high, my pressure is up here. And with high pressure comes low performance. You just can't perform well. How do you increase performance? You lower pressure. So instead of going up on stage saying, I'm going to kill, I'm going to impress the, the booker in the back of the room. I'm going to make my future today, right now, with all the burden of expectation that carries. You just go up on stage saying, I'm going to have fun and do my best. Because you know you can always have fun. You can always try to do your best. That, that means that you have an expectation you can easily exceed rather than setting an expectation that you most likely won't meet. And if that sounds like you're tricking yourself, you're playing a trick on yourself in your mind, mm -hmm. you very much are. But the value of the trick is you perform better. And I mean, perform both in the sense of performing on stage as a performer and just performing better with your creativity, performing more efficiently in life. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's go on a date. You know, you go on a date. I haven't been on a date in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Thanks to my wife. She won't let me date. I don't know why. <laughs> but, 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 but I can imagine that if I were dating now, I feel a lot of pressure, you know, like this date's got to work out or I'm going to be sad and lonely for the rest of my life. That's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. I'm much better off going into that date saying, I'm going to try and have fun, have a good time in the moment, see what happens next. That's low pressure. When you put yourself in a low pressure environment, you will always perform better. Mm. And you can do it just by stating it. My goal is to have fun. Can't tell you how many situations I've been in where I've said that to myself going into it. Just have fun. I'm lying, but it's a useful fiction that I tell myself. I like As I point that. out in the book, a useful fiction is a fiction, but it's useful just the same. Mm. The lies that we tell ourselves can be very, very different. Uh what else we got? Yeah, we got Born Branded asking, um, JV helped to create a documentary titled Misery Loves Comedy. How do these of his... How do the theses... Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> how do the theses of his stand-up book... <laughs> no, how do they do these? these? <laughs> yeah. How, how did... Yes, we understand the question. And born branded, thank you for using the word theses, theses. So in such a sophisticated fashion. Throwing me for a loop. The plural there, of yeah. thesis. thesis, thesis. Um, yeah. the, the, the controlling idea of that movie it asks the question do you have to be screwed up to do stand up or does stand up screw you up? Mm. And the punchline to the joke is spoiler alert, yes. But the comics who, who are interviewed in the in the documentary, uh, speak of their inner life. They speak of with frankness about what they experience, what got them into it, what hurdles or setbacks they've encountered, what demons they've confronted. And as a class, they demonstrate self-awareness. And it's funny you asked that question. I hadn't really thought about it in that way because when I did the documentary, it was years and years before I thought about writing this book. And I hadn't really put those two things together. But I would imagine if I went back and looked at it now, I would say, yeah, what I'm seeing here is people who know themselves because they've taken the time to figure out themselves. And insofar as these are people who we admire because they have a level of success, we can see that, yeah, they put in hard work. Yeah, they have talent. And yeah, they write good jokes. They have cleverness. They've got lucky breaks. You know, Pauly Shore is Mitzi Shore's son. So that's a leg up for him. But the common denominator, what else they all have is a willingness to confront themselves and not be satisfied with work that's only okay and keep reinventing themselves and keep reimagining themselves and leveling up the quality of their material. There's something else I talk about in the book and it's worth talking about. 
you got, you've seen comics like this. They have five minutes and you know it's their five minutes because you've heard it for years. Can you think about comics you know, Joel, mm-hmm. who are telling you the same five minutes they told you last year and the year before mm-hmm. and the year before that? And, you know, what's, what do they say in Alcoholics Anonymous? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. You put those five minutes before audience after audience and you expect it to be a transformational experience. You expect those jokes to do something different than they did last time or the time before. And, it, and, if, and if it doesn't happen, you blame the audience and you end up hating and resenting the audience for not having a, uh, an understanding of reality that matches your understanding of reality. One thing I've learned in my experience is that reality doesn't care about my expectations. It's gonna be what it is. Flights are gonna get canceled, jobs are gonna get lost, People are going to die. Bad things are going to happen, whether I want them to or not, and whether I expect them to, and whether I'm happy about that. So for somebody who's holding on to their first five minutes, trying to make it work, even though evidence exists that it's not working as well as they want it to, that's the time to gently set it aside and take a fresh pass. And all you have to overcome at the moment is the sense that the next five minutes won't be as good as the last five minutes. But that's never going to be the case. The next five minutes will always be better because they always stand on the platform of the experience that have gotten has gotten you as far as it's gotten you so far. The people who don't get past that, who get locked into the five minutes and do it at the same open mics week after week, month after month, year after year, it's the self-awareness that they're lacking. They don't see themselves on a path toward growth. And by growth, I mean growth of self-awareness. And as a consequence, they don't allow themselves to undergo the necessary change that will bring them to a higher level of development. It's funny how it all comes back to the same stuff. Self-awareness, self-acceptance. You got those two things, you got everything you need. Which is all mental. It's just like, it's Mm. ourselves that will hold ourselves back. What else would it be? Let's say I'm trying to write a joke. And... My first thought is, here's a funny joke situation. Let me explore it. And then my next thought is, I'm not any good. It's probably not going to work. I'm going to come up with a joke that's bad and people are going to hate me. At that moment, my creativity slips because I'm not thinking about solving the problem of the joke. I'm thinking about the emotional reaction I will have to a response that I can't really anticipate because I haven't even written a joke yet. How do I solve that problem? By stepping outside the vicious circle I'm caught in. The vicious circle that says, you don't achieve, therefore you're no good, therefore you won't try, therefore you don't achieve. Instead, you can achieve, therefore you try, therefore you get better, therefore you achieve more. And that's what, that's what puts you in a vicious, a virtuous circle rather than a vicious circle. Mm, virtuous versus vicious, yes. So mm-hmm. could you tell, tell the, uh, the hot breath of verse, like where, where they can get the book and like, reach out to you because i mean even at the at the end of the book you had such a heartfelt it's like letter to the reader that like was very genuine sincere about how i mean how much you like to help people as well so um yeah please tell us like where they can get the book and yeah all that yeah yeah um if you know the spelling of my name john vorehouse then you have key pieces of information you know how to find me on amazon because you can go to my amazon author page which you can find just by Googling John Vorks or Googling Little Book of Stand-Up. That'll take you to Amazon. Mm-hmm. All of my works are available. Most of my works are available on Amazon. That's really the only place I work online. My thinking is if you can't find your way to Amazon, you can't find your way to anywhere. <laughs> so I make my stuff available on Amazon, but also on my own website, which coincidentally is johnvorehouse.com. So again, if you have my name, you have it all. On, on my website, you can download PDFs of my books and you can get signed printed copies that I hand fulfill. As you've seen, Joel, I, I, uh, I write, I sign it, I put it in an envelope, I walk it to the post office, I send it to you, and I feel like the king of the world every time I do that. It was awesome. And then, <laughs> there you go. And then, and then the further thing is, there's a joke I used to tell about myself. Like I was, I would be in some far flung part of the world, blowing people's minds with what I knew about sitcom. And people would say things to me like, thank you. This has been so helpful. And the joke that I would say is don't thank me. I define myself through service. And it was a joke to me because I didn't see myself as being in service. I really thought I was just a selfish 
faster. But John Wesley Harding, the folk singer, has a great song lyric. He says, your jokes will become your reality. And over time, I found I really did value the impact that I was having on other people's lives. And I think I valued it because I started to understand this is my purpose. This is my legacy. This is how I'm making a difference in the world. I have no expectation of being a uh, star of a sitcom as an example, but I do have the firm expectation of helping other people do better what they want to do well. So I am legitimately in service. Now, here's the thing. If I'm legitimately in service, then I got to walk it like I talk it. And the way I do it is with my famous JV five-minute promise. And here it comes. You're listening. You're hearing it now. You said it in the book. If you think that I'm the sort of person who can answer a question you might have or solve a problem that you might have related to your creativity or your comedy or your dating life or your personal habits or whatever, if you think I can help you, reach out to me. Go to my website, click on a contact, send me an email. Here's my promise to you. Gentle friend, I will help you in any way I can to the limit of my ability so long as it doesn't take more than five minutes and I don't have to leave my desk. Because it turns out there's a hell of a lot I can accomplish in five minutes sitting at my desk. And that's an open promise to you. It's one that I've fulfilled for countless people throughout my life. And while it's a benefit to you, it's a tremendous benefit to me because that means you're at my website. You're thinking about my work. Maybe you're buying my books or maybe you're just allowing my ideas to enter your life and your mind where I think they can do you some good. So my door is an open door and that is sincere and genuine. Awesome. Plus buy my books, all yes. my books and, and my art. <laughs> his email is marks. in the book everyone so get the book you can get his email for that five minute promise <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your time way more than five minutes but thank you so much it's good to have you back on the show john and thank you for my, your service and help here today my my pleasure joel it's a pleasure to spend time with you i seize I eagerly seize every opportunity because you're in service too majorly mm -hmm. in service and 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 Maybe I, I hope that knowing what, what you're dealing with, George Water and Power, uh, maybe you can, can extract from this session uh, a little understanding that the path that you're on in service to other comics is not just kind of by default where you ended up, but probably where you belong and where you should stay. If I can close on this thought, the best place to be in life is at the intersection of passion and purpose where passion is the stuff that you're good at and enjoy doing, and purpose is the stuff that you do because you know it makes a difference. Obviously, I'm at the intersection of passion and purpose when I'm writing books because I'm good at that, and I'm serving the purpose of helping writers, and that makes me feel like my life is worthwhile. So for you, for anybody listening, ask yourself what exists at the intersection of my passion and purpose and try and work in that space. I think you'll be happy there. Well, go forth, Hot breath of Earth. Find the intersection of passion and purpose. And we'll see you next Monday. Bye, y'all. Go sports team. Woo! Thanks for listening, Hot Breath of Verse. If you want to make this your best year in comedy, we've created a four comics by comics library of workshops and classes to help you level up your game today. Check them out linked in the show notes, and I'll see you there. And I'll see you right here next Monday on Hot Breath. Hot Breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.